Hello and welcome back to Cooking the Books with me, Jilly Smith, the podcast which takes us through four food moments from the books of our favourite A-list of food writers. It's all about life, culture and politics, all through the prism of food. And you can also find me on Food FM, the online radio station and global podcast platform which aims to change the world through food. This week, I'm with 2013 MasterChef finalist Sarah Hamilton, whose latest book takes us deep into the little-known food culture of Bangladesh. My Bangladesh kitchen is full of food stories and poets and mystics and nostalgia for the country of Sarah's ancestors. But as we find out, Bangladesh is also one of the fastest growing economies in the world. Yes, the economy is growing quickly, but that has unintended consequences. You know, that sort of rapid creation of a middle class, which are living in towns and cities now, because the sort of, you know, idyllic rural image that I have of our village home, you know, there are veggies kind of everywhere. Um, and you're right, you know, that, that is definitely being lost. But before we're transported to its lush landscapes, we have to step back into the studios of MasterChef 2013. I asked Sarah if it changed her life. Yeah, completely. And it was a, it's sort of a dream thing for me, you know, having been a fan of the show and just watched it, grown up watching it and, and enjoying it. And, you know, that I was one of those people sort of texting all my friends, you know, whilst it was on talking about, you know, how terrible something was or how brilliant something was. Um, and to actually be there it was very surreal, like being in a dream. But I, but I just decided I'm just going to have fun, going to enjoy myself here. And, and I did. And you came from a 20-year career. I've heard that you were in law enforcement. Does that mean you were a policewoman? I, I work for actually what's what's now uh, the National Crime Agency. So I was working in, sounds much more glamorous than it is, in criminal intelligence. So not actually Ooh. on the ground, breaking down doors, but sort of, you know, working behind the scenes. Amazing. But you're still doing that? Well, I've I've slightly moved on. So I'm, I'm still in the civil service, kind of uh, working in a government job, but but in a different role nowadays, yes. I, I kind of had a bit of, a, a bit of time off. Um, whilst I, you know, fully engrossed myself in the whole cooking world and food world, which I loved. And then after a bit, you know, it was, it felt like, uh, yeah, back, back to reality a little bit. It's, it's amazing, isn't it? The amount of people who have really straight jobs. I mean, your job sounds a little bit more glamorous than the bank managers and accountants <laughs> I talk to. But, you know, there are so many of these people who, for whom cooking is like a superpower. You know, they waft it out having spent 20 years in banking or whatever. <laughs> and, and suddenly they, they're doing supper clubs and they're appearing on this morning. And yeah, I mean, yeah. it really is quite extraordinary what, what cooking can do. Why do you think it has that power to, to propel you into such a different world? I mean, I genuinely think that it's, it, for me, it's my creative outlet. You know, you, you kind of, you have, you have the job and you have the day job and, you know, I had children and, you know, you sort of, you're doing all of that stuff. And, you know, that, that was my creative time, you know, the time to think about it. Was, it's my, you know, sort of getting away from the world, you know, dreaming up recipes, thinking I was that sort of person. I would go, we would go to lots of restaurants and, you know, we love eating, you know, food from all over the world. And as I'm sitting there eating, I'm thinking, oh, this is really good. Oh, I love the way that that sort of, you know, sour note comes in and, you know, cleanses your palate. And, all that. and then I would go home and try and recreate it. So, uh, you know, so for me, it's always been kind of there in the background. But I think for all the other people you're saying, like you say, they've they've got these kind of careers that are completely straight jobs I quite like that really straight jobs and then then they they come into this this cooking thing I think shows like MasterChef are just brilliant for that you know they really are because they they unleash this potential in you and and the brilliant thing about the show I don't you know people have their views about it and I know it's not everybody's cup of tea but the wonderful thing about the show is that 
you learn so much. You know, the, the cook I was at the beginning of the, of my journey, my Master Chef journey, to use that phrase, um, it, it was very different to the cook that came out at the end. You know, you learn so much if you just keep your eyes open. You know, absorb stuff, listen to what people tell you, watch other people the access you get on MasterChef to some of the most amazing chefs and, and kind of creative minds in the industry is brilliant. You'll never get that anywhere else. You've just got to just go for it. Yeah. And and likewise, you know, we get a huge amount out of it. You know, there's so much effort to get representation yeah. of diverse ethnic communities on telly as presenters. But actually, it's the TV chefs, it's Bake Off and yeah. MasterChef where you get that representation. So we learn a lot about yeah. different community cooking and cooking from all over the world. I mean, you you were known when in MasterChef days as a Bengali chef. Yet this book that we're going to be talking about today is, is my Bangladesh kitchen. And you do write a lot about the history and the culture of your country. I mean, do you call yourself Bangladeshi or Bengali? That's really difficult. I, I think um, I, I interchange it genuinely. I, I don't I don't think it's uh, kind of you know, I I, got, I have many labels. <laughs> I'm a I'm a British Asian. I'm, I'm Bengali. I'm Bangladeshi. You know, uh, so I'm all of those things. So the, the main difference for me is, you know, Bengal is a region. Bengal spans India and Bangladesh, and and, and you know, when it comes to the food, the language, the culture, the music it's all bengali you know everyone has yeah. a has a kind of a right to that if you like you know from yeah. from the whole of bengal but bangladesh is a different you know kind, kind of part of it and, and obviously as a as a relatively new country we just celebrated um yeah the 50th anniversary of independence this year uh, sorry last year where am i and um uh, but that you know because it's such a you know i say relatively new country still many people you know who who were there at the birth of of the nation you know being bangladeshi is also something that, that instills great pride so i think it, it's fine to say either you know really you're both yeah, it's part of a modern movement, isn't it? I mean, Bengal yeah. has been around since the third century BC. Um, <laughs> yes. It has a rich heritage of of Buddhist and Hindu dynasties and Arab settlers. Yeah. Um, yeah. Bangladesh is now the eighth most populous country in the world. Um, yeah. And it has the biggest refugee populations, uh, largely because of the Rohingya uh, yeah. exodus a few years back. Uh, from yes. Myanmar, which it borders. It's really interesting to look at the geography here. You know, there's India to the west, north and east, Myanmar to the southeast, and the Bay of Bengal to the south. And it's yeah. a very uh, rural country, isn't it? Mostly, yes. although, you know, Dhaka is absolutely <laughs> thriving. And yeah. is, it's one of the fastest growing economies, isn't it? It definitely is in that category, um, and uh, you know, which is which is brilliant to see. I mean, they uh, as, as a country, as, as you say, kind of where they are situated, ha- and the geography, you know, t- tells a lot about the kind of the people and how they live and everything else. And yeah. and I think people, you know, if if anyone's been lucky enough to go to Bangladesh, brilliant. If you haven't, go book your ticket immediately because it's it's <laughs> wonderful. Um, there's so much to see. It's much more, and, and I think for you know, maybe for, for British or European uh, tourists or travellers, uh, they they often think of India, you know, they'll have a, an image in their mind of, of India and what that's like. And then they don't, probably don't have any image of what Bangladesh is like. But, but if you've ever been to Thailand or Burma or Canberra, it's much more like that. You know, when you get into yeah, the countryside, it's very lush, it's very verdant. 
this sort of jungle, there's water everywhere, rivers, you know, crisscrossing the country. Um, but it is, yeah, it's, it's, it's a wonderful, it is a wonderful country. People are very proud of, of their nation, as I say, as, as a relatively young nation. And, um, and yeah. they're doing good things. They're doing good things there, I would say. Well, it, 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 and so it seems, but it, you know, I'm just thinking about what I know when I was doing this, sort of reading your book and doing the prep for this. And I was thinking, what do I know about Bangladesh? I know that it's very vulnerable to climate change. It's a very low lying yes. country. Um, yep. I know that a lot of the um, Indian restaurants that, you know, grew up in, in Britain in the 1970s and 80s were actually, it was mostly Bangladeshi chefs in the kitchen. Yeah. And that it felt to me that there's a lot of hiding behind India. You know, it's that, that there's not, I mean, it's interesting that you use that word pride yeah. and maybe that is a resurgence of yeah. interest and pride in the country, but it certainly hasn't been. That representation of Bangladeshi people, certainly in Britain, hasn't been, uh, you know, something that has been terribly embraced by the Bangladeshis or so it seems. I mean, is that just me? I don't, I don't know that, I don't know what the motivations are other than, I, th- I think, you know, maybe, uh, you know, the rest of Britain wasn't ready for that, you know, if it had to be before, you know, they, they, um, you know, I, I grew up, you know, in the, uh, I'm a child, you know, child of the seventies, grew up in the eighties in a very monocultural sort of place. Um, you know, really there weren't many Asian people where, where I lived at all. Where did you and, live? Uh, so I lived in, in Essex. I'm, I describe myself as a Bengali Welsh Essex girl. I was born in Wales, but brought up in Essex and, um, you know, in Harlow, Harlow New Town, which is, you know, if you've ever been there you know it, it's what you'd expect it to be um it's a I, I loved it you know I had a brilliant childhood growing up there um but they're saying there weren't many other Asian people around in those days and if I had said to somebody I'm from you know you know if they when you know people were calling me things and uh, you know talking about it they knew they knew about India they know what an Indian is but they wouldn't they wouldn't have a clue what a Bangladeshi person was so you just didn't bother yeah. saying it you know you wouldn't say yeah. Oh, well, actually, actually, my parents are from Bangladesh because they would say, what? <laughs> what does that mean? So when it, and I think that translated to the food as well. You, know, you wouldn't bother trying to educate, you know, somebody and say, well, actually, this is Bangladeshi food. It's not. You would just say it's Indian and, and have done with it. Right, that is it, yeah. probably. That yeah. You've probably hit the nail on the head. It's in the attempt to assimilate, uh, just keep your head down, yep. don't answer too many questions. Absolutely. Or if nobody's asking, yeah. just get on with it. Um, the fact that we absolutely love Indian food laid out a canvas for us to paint rather prettier pictures on. Exactly. And now, of course, we can't get enough yeah. of, of the fabulous stories behind it. And that's what your book is so full of. Before we go into your first food moment, let's just paint a picture. It's a rather romantic ideal that you paint of women squatting on, on a little platform <laughs> like your mother Nadira who you say you know you were so inspired by and you talked about a lot in MasterChef you know you talk about them uh, stirring and cooking and gossiping and laughing um, and you say that your mother loves her kitchen here that's full of gadgets but there is that sort of romantic notion of going back to the way things were would your mother feel as romantic about that idea of <laughs> chopping and pasting and spending hours making paste? You know, which does she prefer, her gadgets or her pestle and mortar? Well, uh, my mother's no longer with us now, but um, I think if she was here, she she would definitely have said a bit of both you know she definitely wouldn't want to do that every day you know she wouldn't want to be you know squatting down and and kind of you know grinding the spices by hand and all that kind of thing but the thing that's it, it is romantic the word you use romantic is is exactly right and, and it is a romantic image but it's also I think the thing that's really lovely is is you could do that 
with a wood smoky wood fire and a kind of your own homemade uh, spice paste when there's a communal effort when there's a gang of women you know and somebody's chopping the onions and the other person's preparing the fish and somebody's grinding the turmeric paste for you you've got all that going if it's just you you know with our lives that we live here yeah. you know and you're at work and then you come home you're not going to want to do that you're going to want to throw it in the blender and kind of you know get it in the pan and get the food on the table that's kind of but it's a, it's a different thing and I think there's something the romanticism of it comes from how close you are to the origins of of that food you know you you are the fishes from the the pond beside you and the spices from not very far and I think we're all yearning for that now I mean that's definitely yeah. a movement in whatever cuisine you're talking about to feel close to your ingredients and, and I'm a great believer in sort of fe- feeling your food you know I'm not I'm a uh, the worst thing about writing the book for me was was having to measure everything you know that is not the way I cook in my life <laughs> yeah. you know normally so you know but that kind of taste feel and, and and looking that that becomes much more the norm when you're cooking in that yeah. way I think yeah no absolutely that is exactly it. that sounds like my new year in Cornwall actually uh, a, a, a big kitchen filled with women yeah us all doing bits and bobs of you know putting a thing together and spending all day yeah you know going out and getting the fish from the day boat and yeah and coming back and, and and using local produce and and loving it so you're absolutely right yeah. but you know and it is that idea that time is precious yeah you know we seem to have lost it everybody has 24 hours in the day and I'm constantly fighting this time poor narrative but that image that you portray is kind of what we all yearn for there's an ache in our soul was there an ache in your soul as you became an adult and you were sort of thinking about where you came from it's a story I hear a lot Mm. when you know teenagers particularly growing up from a different culture uh, in Britain or, you know, don't take the, the lunchbox to, to, to school because it might be a bit smelly. We desperately want to assimilate. But actually, when you get to your early 20s, you suddenly kind of get a yearning for who you are um, and you find it in your food. Did that happen to you? Um, it it kind of did. I, I recognise that, you know, entirely, you know, that, that image that you're you're describing there. Um you know, there's that great film, Bargey on the Beach, isn't there? Which is exactly that sort of, you know, when everyone else would, would get out their kind of sandwiches on the bus, you know, I would have, you know, parata and alubazi, which is kind of, you know, uh, you know, a, t- a very different thing. Um, did I, I didn't at the time, and I think again, because, because of the sort of mon- monocultural kind of environment in which I grew up in. So I, I never really felt very, everyone was very interested, you know, the people, there, there was a lot of interest and a kind of novel, it was novel, you know, the sorts of smells that were coming out of our kitchen and the, the kind of things that were going on there so people were interested so maybe you know I was just lucky um I think I was also very lucky that my parents always kept a very close relationship with with the country of their of their birth and we, and we went nearly every year you know we visited so it never felt like this as a second generation immigrant I realized how lucky I was to get that experience because a lot of people don't um but uh did I yes I did I did I I missed as soon as I left and I left I left home at 18 and um as soon as I left I missed my mum's cooking you know terribly but luckily I was the one who was always in the kitchen with her so I felt I was able to recreate it and it was never as good as hers you know certainly not in the beginning it it wasn't the same thing but my sister had not done that so my older sister obviously grew up exactly uh in the same house in the same way but Molly was never interested in, in the cooking. So when she left, she really did miss it because she couldn't recreate it. Even a, yes. even a pastiche of it, she couldn't do it, but I could. Um, so I, so I, 
the yearning then just became for me to really learn and and perfect and really get all of the knowledge out of my mum's head. And again, it's a very oral culture, so she would never have written anything down um, in terms of a recipe, but to get it all out of her head so that every time I saw her, every weekend we visited, it, I was still with her in the kitchen, but this time I was properly on listening mode so that I could could learn. Yeah. yeah. And it is very much about technique, isn't it? And let's go into your first food moment to give some colour and taste and smell to that. Um, you've chosen the Shabsi Pakora, the vegetable pakoras, little golden balls of delicious vegetables, <laughs> lightly coated in a crispy, crunchy batter. Oh my God, it's only 10 o'clock in the morning, but I really can, I can taste this right now. Tell us why you chose that and tell us about the technique. What did you learn from your mother? Well, I think the main thing I learned, um, and then again, you know, th- this might come up again and again, but the, the sort of difference between what you get in an Indian restaurant, an Indian restaurant, I'm doing the quotation mm. thing there, yeah, yeah. Um, and what you get in at home is that the restaurant version is a sort of what what I have found to be a, a very heavy doughy battery kind of thing with a couple of vegetables you know a hint of vegetable in there whereas in the in the Bengali way of doing it, it's completely different you know you start with the vegetables the vegetables are abundant so what you do is everything gets shredded up and put there and then you just add a bit of flour a bit of water a bit of flour a bit of water and then and only when the vegetables are just bound, you know, just kind of starting to hold together, you fry them. And then what you get is this almost sort of crispy tempura-like um, batter, uh, which is just coating the vegetables. And as you bite into them, you get the sweetness. So the sorts of vegetables you would use have a lot of natural sweetness in them anyway. So onions, carrots, potato, these are all sugary, starchy kind of vegetables. And so as you cook them, you know, quickly in hot oil... You just get that amazing, you know, the spice is very delicate. It's not, it's not overly spiced. There's only really turmeric and chili in there and a bit of salt. So what you're getting is the, is the, the kind of perfection of those vegetables just cooked sweetness from them with the spice of the batter. That's what's all you need. You know, I mean, I, I'm a great believer in that. Don't overcomplicate things, you know, that, that, that yeah. in itself, if you haven't tried it, you must. They're just, they're just brilliant. Yeah. And I mean, you talk a lot about your the Bangladesh kitchen using locally sourced products. I mean, you know, everything grows or swims in the many, many rivers crossing the whole country. Um, what's so specifically Bangladeshi about those pakora? Um uh, I think that also the use of rice flour, it's one of those things that I, I use. So actually, it's kind of naturally quite a gluten-free sort of diet. Over the, We don't use a lot of wheat flour. It's not a bread-based culture. It's a rice-based uh, kind of food culture over there. Um, so that, and, and the, what the rice flour does is it, is it makes... Uh, it makes it incredibly crispy and, um, uh, and keeps it light uh uh, in that way and then the other thing i would say that makes it particularly bangladeshi and uh, is and i'm you know i'm not an expert on other indian cuisine so you know i hopefully i won't say anything's out of line here but we use a lot of um like fresh chilies and fresh coriander so you get that that almost garden freshness you know from the things that you're eating and and you can't substitute a green chili there's green chilies in, in so many uh, you know in so many Bengali dishes um, because that doesn't just give you heat it gives you flavour and that kind of real freshness so I think I think if I had to pick one thing I'd say that's the that's what makes them different and, and Bengali is that kind of you know very fresh and, and uh, you know the fresh herbs and chilies that that make it yeah 
And you do say that um, Bangladesh has always been a, a country where people have grown, traditionally grown things in their back garden, yep. like, uh, you know, like we used to and everyone used to all over the world. <laughs> I, I did a programme for my other podcast, Right to Food for the Food Foundation, with one of the global youth leaders for Act for Food, Act for Change. And she's a young woman and she is campaigning for um, young people in Bangladesh to really kind of become more aware of nutrition that malnutrition is a really big deal and she says that there's a real loss of that culture Mm. people are no longer growing their food and it feels like this kind of awful loss of connection that we've had in this country which is so linked to climate change could be happening in Bangladesh you know how how much of those stories are you hearing I I think that's that is so true And, and actually what you were saying before you know yes the economy is growing quickly but that has unintended consequences you know that sort of rapid creation of a middle class which are living in towns and cities now because the sort of you know idyllic rural image that i have of our village home and and everybody's home has got even if it's a tiny little patch of you know and and everything grows very easily there so you know there are veggies kind of everywhere um and you're right you know that that is definitely being lost by people And, and i think then you the more, as soon as you get one step removed, it's very easy to get two or three. And then kind of, you know, processed foods, which was never a thing, you know, it just wasn't a thing that you could get in Bangladesh. Uh, well, you talked about the 20 fish years ago. Well. Yeah, exactly. The fish farms. Although, to be fair, most locals don't eat that fish. You know, that that is very much for export. Um, the sorts of fish uh, Bangladeshi people eat are usually inedible for anyone else because they've got so many bones uh, in them. But uh, uh yeah, so I think that is a real shame. But having said that, I still feel, and you know, I can't speak for everybody, obviously, but I still feel like the uh, you know vegetable quotient, shall we say, in most Bangladeshi people's diet—vegetables and fish and lentils and rice—you know, that that is still, I would say, yeah. the basis of most you know Bangladeshi people's diets, even now, even in the towns and cities. Yeah, and your second food moment is taco dal. Um, yes. Lentils tempered with garlic, one of my absolute favourite yeah. dishes and staple across the whole of the Indian subcontinent. Again, what is different about this one? What's Bangladeshi about it? So the, the, there's a couple of varieties of dal in, in the book. I mean, the taco dal is, is the classic, you know, it, it's the um, the lentils with kind of, you know, not much in it, you know, in terms of you, you just cook them kind of plain um but uh, and then you temper it you know which is when you kind of fry in hot oil some spices onions garlic till they're properly properly golden and crispy almost burnt you know where you're slightly getting that slight bitterness from the from the Mm. garlic all gets chucked into the dal at the end i mean what's bengali about it's just literally you know for a bengali person if you put a a meal on the table and there's no dal you haven't eaten you know you you could eat the whole thing And then you would still want some some dal at the end. You know, it's a bit like, and and I used to say this in my cooking classes, it's a bit like serving a roast dinner with no gravy. You just can't do it. It's not... Outrageous. Exactly, it wouldn't happen. And um, and, and a Bangladeshi person would never do it. I mean, the one that... um, and the other thing is the varieties of it. So one of the other things that we really like in Bangladeshi food is sourness. We like a bit of uh, tok, as we call it, a bit of tok in the in the food, and it really works with the heat and the kind of sweetness of of the um, of the lentils as well, which are you know generally quite sweet. So uh, yeah, so over there it would be it might be sour mango, you know, unripe mango that goes in there, or 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 you know other kind of green tamarind. vegetables. Tamarind goes in there, but. Over here, the thing that I really remember is when my mum came over here, 
um you couldn't really get you know sour mangoes or you could get anything really in the shops in those days um but we did have like rhubarb in the garden we had rhubarb we had Mm. gooseberry we had gooseberry bushes so she would just she would you know bring those the same flavors but totally different we don't get gooseberries in Bangladesh you just definitely don't get rhubarb um but you (laughs) chop up a stick of rhubarb and stick it in your dal before you temper Mm. it Honestly, it's it's incredible. You'll be amazed. I'll give it a go. <laughs> yeah, fantastic. It's wonderful. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, your third food moment is about the fish of Bangladesh, and you've chosen the chingri matcha buna. Is well that how you done. It? I like it. Very well. Good. <laughs> King prawns with tomato and chili. Exactly. <laughs> chingri matcha buna. Yes. Exactly. Uh, it's it's the one of the dishes on the front cover of the book. Yeah. Um, tell us about fish and seafood. This is one of the things that actually does uh, describe a, a Bangladeshi diet. Yes. It's one yeah. of the main proponents. I think, it? yeah, it's definitely one of the, if I had to kind of, you know, describe some what's different between Bangladeshi food and, and Indian food, you know, the, the prevalence of fish is definitely yeah. in there. And it yeah. tends to be river fish as well. So that's the other thing. Mm. So, yes, there is, as you said, you know, on the south, the Bay of Bengal, there's a big seacoast uh and uh yeah prawns and, and sea fish you know definitely are abundance but generally in the south of the country but in the rest of the country it's all about the rivers and there are very big rivers and with very big fish in them uh mm. so it's almost like a it, they tend to be cut you know as like a meaty steak fish for the for the big ones but everything from the tiniest little you know like like just the tip of your little finger kind of little silver fish which will be kind of like scooped up in a in a very fine net and then just just really simply fried with some salt and turmeric and green chilies um you know having that with white rice is is amazing um so there's just fish and everything i mean i chose the king prawns because you know Bangladesh is definitely known for its prawns now as uh, we don't know the figures but we export prawns all over the world and um but the, these this recipe is for like the really big the treat prawns you know as i would call them you know the great the great big ones where um you can find they're very kind of meaty and luxuriant and, and amazing and my mum would always cook them this was our kind of when, when we could call in favours for mum, so if we once we'd left home, we were coming to visit, we'd say, "Oh, mum, could we have could we have that when we come to visit?" And um, you know, she would always get the biggest, you know, almost like as big as a lobster, kind of like massive great prawns from the uh, from the uh, Bengali shop, which had opened down the road, and uh, yeah, get that and and the whole prawn, obviously. And one of my favourite memories was uh, watching my my poor husband when when he came for the first few times over to our house and we're all very loud and kind of he wasn't really used to that sort of thing and uh yeah watching my mother who was tiny you know I mean I'm I'm short my mother was very petite you know she was like you could put her in your pocket and um very petite very (laughs) I love the way you're holding your fingers up there (laughs) as if you could actually fit her between your thumb and your (laughs) forefinger but she she was very tiny petite very glamorous very you know put together always looked amazing um but you know her tackling a massive prawn head and like crunching away at it and sucking out the brains and my my husband's face was just uh you know he's from guildford he'd never seen anything like this <laughs> it was terrifying it was great very funny presumably you can make this dish with uh, you know the, the 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 less huge but monster prawns yes. that you described yes you can make yeah. it with any prawn. it's probably the one i get the most sort of contact and emails about of people saying oh i tried that and it was it was fantastic and it's a good a good starter one i think you know yeah your your final food moment is the beef and potato curry i'm not even going to pretend that i could get my, <laughs> my lips around this one guru mangshur Daye alu is it? The, it's very difficult for me to write Dye. these things in English. It's a guru mangshu dia alu. So with uh, that just means guru is cow. So cow meat, 
with potatoes. It's very simple. It's a very simple dish title, but it sounds better, doesn't it? Yeah, it does. It's 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 a very traditional curry. Uh, yeah. Again, I'm looking through it, and I I'm not seeing a difference between what I would do as a typical sort of uh, Indian curry. I mean, yeah. what, again, what the question? What makes it Bangladeshi? I mean, there's a couple of techniques. I, I say I'm not saying that these are exclusive, you know, to Bangladesh. But mm-hmm. I mean, the main things, you know, particularly when you do a, a bula, which is the kind of the technique of cooking as well. Um, the couple of things I would one you know lots of onions and plenty of oil and the, and the reason that you need the oil is because you need to cook those spices well before they burn you know if you haven't got enough oil in the in the pan that's what's going to happen the spices will burn and the flavor will be impaired it won't be terrible it won't be kind of you know the worst thing in the world but it it won't be the best it can be and and then there's another thing which happens which is the the Koshano, which I, I I have no idea how, what the English equivalent of that is, but what it is is when you're cooking your spice paste, and, and I'm sure that you know your listeners will will be well aware of this, but you see that oil rise to the surface. So that koshano is when you know the spices are cooked, and that's when you can sort of turn the heat down, add some water, you know, and, and then get things kind of cooking long and slow so that the, the meat really breaks down. But you you know and if you do it before that you're just never going to get the same like depth of flavor into it and then the other thing i would say is i I use quite a lot of whole spices which irritates some people because they're oh why is this this twig in my food and the answer is because it makes your food taste nice and and it really does it adds to those different levels if you just use ground spices you're only ever going to get one dimension of flavor if you then add to that with whole spices, you get those kind of high floral aromatic notes. And then you add yeah. lots of aromats, you know, loads of ginger and garlic. When you think you've got enough garlic, add in another three cloves of garlic, you know, and, and just kind of, you know, really ramp it up, be very bold and generous with your kind of, you know, spicing. Because, you know, especially when you're cooking meat, it can take it, you know, you can take it. Yeah, and time as well. Yeah. I remember my parents always used to, They, we, I grew up in Malaysia and yeah. uh, they loved to cook Malay curries and they would cook them for 12 hours at a time, again, with loads of twigs and things yeah, exactly. <laughs> constantly pulling <laughs> yeah. things out. But it really did make a huge difference. Yeah. I mean, can you make these curries uh, I was going to say quickly, but, you know, less than 12 hours. I mean, you can, you can, you know, and I have to say some of the recipes, you know, again, maybe because of the way I was brought up, you know, my, my parents both worked, you know, my mum was was a doctor. She was, she would come in until, you know, surgery wouldn't finish till 7, 7.30 sometimes. And then she would have to cook for us, you know, so so you you have to adapt. You, know, you can't always cook things for 12 hours. It's nice if you can, but, um, yeah. you know, but if you can't, there are other ways to do it. Uh, you know, you use different sort of meat. You would use kind of meat on the bone and that sort of thing. You might use some, something much quicker. Or you cook fish, you know, which you can do really quickly or, or, or just have vegetables. That's all fine. But, yeah, you, you can do it. But, yeah, I mean... Uh, for me, the, it's the, always going to taste nicer with the time. It is the time. I think could actually go into making the curry base as well. So if you really were short on time, you could you could do spend that lots of time on that. Get something really really packed of flavour. Stick that in the fridge then, and then when you do come home on a Wednesday, you know you you've done all the hard work in advance, and you can actually just get some some 
quick chicken fillets or something and stick them in never going to be as good like i said but you know but it but it's it's certainly very tasty yeah are you still doing the supper clubs um not so much anymore i must say it's been a bit and you know since the pandemic and, and everything you know there was always a plan that i would still do though so now i'm sort of limited to uh i, I do a few kind of charity gigs and, and that kind of thing where I, I what i really like to do now is the sort of the lessons or the demonstrations so i can sort of you know really get across to uh um to people sort of you know the differences and, and how they can recreate these things at home but the actual supper clubs are a bit too i love going to them but uh yeah maybe not for me anymore thanks for listening please get in touch on social media i'm on at cooking the books with jilly smith on instagram and at jilly smith on twitter and sign up for my newsletter at jillysmith.com to find out about the cooking the books supper club at my house i'm hoping that sarah will be able to do one for us in the second half of this year and i'll be back next year with the biblical cuisine of ruth nyman's freaker wild wheats and ancient grains Thank you.